one of <laughs> this is one of my personal pet peeves seeing you know a big dance number and at the end of it you see the actors strike their frontal pose and go <sighs> you know, and they're just showing how hard they worked. It's like, I don't want to see that. I don't want to see your hard work. I want to see that you are a pro. I want to see that you did it and you killed it. And now you look like you didn't even break a sweat. So that as an audience member, I go, how did you do that? I want to be amazed. I want to be impressed. The voice you just heard belongs to Jim Christian. Hi, my name is Jim Christian. And uh, I'm a little boy from Murray, Utah who went to the University of Utah, found out that he loved musical theater and my trajectory just took off from there. And now I'm retired from Weber State University after 38 years of university teaching and I direct and choreograph around the country. And I'm excited to be here. Who met with me over Zoom to discuss his career and process as a musical theater director, choreographer, and writer. I'm your host, Liz Christensen, and it's all in the telling. Welcome to episode 64, Musical Theater with Jim Christian. The way that I got started is I took piano lessons starting when I was six years old. And when I first went to the University of Utah, I was going to be a broadcast major. I was in a class that was about being on camera and being on microphone. And there were some theater majors in there and they found out that I played the piano and two of them said, we're auditioning for the Lagoon Opera House. Would you be our accompanist? And I said, sure. I'll do that. And I went to the audition. They were the last two people to audition. As we're coming down from the stage, the director said, well, aren't you going to audition? And I said, well, I kind of wanted to. I thought that'd be fun, but I didn't really prepare anything. He said, just sing something acapella, just whatever. And I guess they were desperate for men that summer or something, and I got cast. And after that, I decided to do a theater minor, and then it became a double major, and eventually I dropped telecommunications and that was it. Around that same time, I also took a tap class through the PE department and found out that I had an aptitude for that. And so just combining all of those different elements, it just kind of happened. Jim has had a long and varied career in the arts, which made me wonder why he has spent more of his experience with musical theater directing, choreographing, and writing than with other areas. I think it came down to a couple of factors. Because I was on university faculties, I started directing more and more. That kind of just started to happen naturally. And even when I was in undergraduate school, a friend of mine had written a children's musical that was being produced by the department. And he said, um, I need a musical director and a choreographer. Do you, want, do you want to do it? And so from the minute that I said yes, I was a musical director and a choreographer. And that's kind of how it happens. Somebody just says, you know, do you want to do this? Or you say to yourself, I want to do this. And so you start to do it. And from the time you start, that's when you are. You know, a lot of people think, gosh, you know, it's like this rigorous road that takes you there. And it's like, no, just one day you say you're going to do it. I was fortunate in the fact that I was studying it, you know, and I was learning all about it. And so I had the academic background to couple with that. And then I also found out that I was just a lot happier backstage and behind the scenes rather than on stage. Why, why was that? I think I felt more in, in control and I felt like it was a better way of using my voice for what was going on because I, I mean, I think I was an adequate performer. I mean, I got cast in things, you know, I got to do a lot of different fun, cool stuff, 
but I didn't find the same satisfaction. I'm a puzzled person. I'm somebody who likes to storytell. And for me, it was just the opportunity to have that more global position of bringing all of the elements together, helping to synthesize them, unify everything, and make sure that everybody in the production was on the same page. Are you picking your shows or are shows picking you? Both. Um, when I was on the university faculty, I did a lot of the choosing. Now with the freelance work that I do, I get approached and somebody says, hi, we're doing a production of this and we would like to offer you the position to direct that. Or if somebody has a season and they're saying we're, we want people to submit what shows they would like to do, that's when I get to do the choosing. How do you choose when you get to do the choosing? I have to be excited about a project. I have to be passionate. You know, there has to be some reason. Either I love the script, I love the message, or it's a company for whom I want to work. I want to support them and help them. Uh, it's been interesting. A couple of the most recent gigs that I've done have been in California and Tennessee working for former students who are now artistic directors and managing directors and producers at companies. And so it just kind of keeps rolling forward. And I am generally a really upbeat guy. And I like, to, I like positive messages. I want people to walk away from the theater wanting to be better people, be kinder, gent gentler, more loving, more generous, whatever. It's not to say that I am not happy to do a Sweeney Todd or a You're in Town. You know, I love those shows that also have the different kinds of layerings and social messages and things like that. But the dark side of life, you know, we all spend enough time in that that we don't need to wallow in it. You know, that's, but that's just me, you know. And fortunately, there are directors out there who like to do the other stuff. Are you getting opportunities to encounter material that you don't already know anymore? Or is that really rare for you to not already have notions or experience on a show? Probably out of the last half dozen, if not a dozen shows that I've done, they've been first time experiences for me. Holiday Inn was brand new for me. Uh, did a production of Matilda, never had done Matilda and uh, something called the Church Basement Ladies. You know, I mean, just all these different properties come up and, you know, if somebody offers it to me and I take a look at it and if it intrigues, I'm in. Do you have a different process from the start anyway, if it is material you've encountered before versus if it's material you haven't encountered before? Yes, because if it's something I've encountered before, if I've directed it in the past, I, I look at what worked. And if there's something that I think I can improve on, then that's where I put a lot of my energy. If it's something brand new, then I start from the ground up. And for me, no matter which way I'm approaching, job number one is for me to tell the playwright's story. I need to get in there and I need to examine that material and go, what do they have to say? And then I'm going to be the audience's tour guide to that story. I'm going to be the person who illuminates the, the moments in the story. And so I really look for the checkpoints in a story. It's like, what's the inciting incident? What's the thing that kicks off the story? And then it moves along here and, ooh, so-and-so learns this. So-and-so introduces this element, this conflict arises and all these different things happen so that by the time we get to the climax, 
things have pointed and pointed and pointed to that moment when all of a sudden uh, Emile Tebeck returns and Nellie is there having bonded with the children in the South Pacific and suddenly all of those people come together and have the opportunity for a future and a happiness. You know, that's just one example, but to me, my responsibility is always go back to the script. If I have a question, if I'm conceptualizing, if I'm assisting with design meetings, you know, and things of that nature and working with the acting, it's always like, what does the script say? What does the script say? Not what do I say? What does the script have to say? Because if we look at that, then what I have to say should only enhance that and never, never come into conflict with it. Because if that's the case, I'm directing the wrong play, you know, and I need to go find the play that says what I'm trying to say there. Would you say that by and large, when you are trying to figure out what the playwright is saying, that you're mm -hmm. operating from kind of like a literary Aristotelian plot structure kind of analysis, like, like English class? To a degree, absolutely. Because I mean, certainly I've had dramatic theory and all of those different things where you look at those classic elements, you know, the things that absolutely are Aristotelian or classic dramatic things. At the same time, also go by instinct. What speaks to me? What jumps off the page that I go, oh, okay, that. That's something that I want to make sure gets enhanced properly as a part of it. So nitty gritty, are you like mm -hmm. pulling out highlighters? Do you tabulate stuff? Do you make spreadsheets? Like what is that on an external manifestation? It depends on the piece. I kind of go with the flow. It's, no, it's never fly by the seat of your pants. I mean, I always try to go in as prepared as possible with things, but I will read stuff and read stuff. And there are times when I'll mark up a script, um, I'll make not notations, but I tend to do that a lot more in the score than in the script. Because, uh, you know, to me, <laughs> as I read a script, I just start seeing it. You know, it just starts playing out of my head. And when it comes to blocking, I have a little set of just different figures. I mean, they're Disney figures just because I ended up collecting them and I have Disney all over the place. So what I do is I go through and I want go, okay, so this character, oh, in my mind, she's the queen of hearts. And <laughs> there's Jafar and oh, there's Alice and there's Peter Pan and Tinkerbell. And so my mind immediately associates these qualities to the characters and then what I do is I get a ground plan that's fairly scale and I just have it in front of me. This is something I learned to do a couple of years ago is I will plot out a scene and take a picture of it. And I make the next moves, picture of that, next moves, picture of that. So that when I'm in a blocking rehearsal, I've got my phone with me and I just swipe and swipe and swipe from picture to picture and picture. Because to me, that's so much more efficient. That has become my method of how I do blocking rather than going through the script and going X cross down left and blah, 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 and diagramming all of those football plays. And now I just use that, that structure is my method. So my phone is loaded up with, you know, if I wanted to go back and, and go, oh, okay, I'm going to be doing this show again. Oh, look, there's all my pictures, you know. <laughs> I want to follow the blocking thread for a second before I go back to those other things. Do you yeah. sit down at the top of rehearsal and say, here are the, here are the checkpoints, here are the beats. Now let's put it on its feet. Are you beating it out as they go? Uh, how does that work? 
Typically for me, I'm a very fast blocker because what I like to do is give the actors a structure in which to explore rather than to say, okay, read the script and go where you feel like you're supposed to go. Because if I've done my homework, I should know that. I should have figured a lot of that out. And then if the actors are finding things along the way, then I'm flexible. You know, it's like, oh yeah, that's a, that's a good choice. That's a better choice. Let's go with that. I had one director that I worked with that I absolutely loved who said in the first rehearsal one time, sat us down and said, right now, I know more about all of your characters than any of you do. And I know more about this play. On opening night, those roles should reverse. You should know them better than I know them and you should know the play better than I know the play. And I, I've always loved that. And I find that actors tend, at least from my perspective, actors tend to be more creative given structure. You know, they have a framework, so they're not second guessing. And there's a very simple principle of blocking that I go with. And that is there are only two reasons in life why we move. We either move towards something or we move away from it. There's either something that attracts us that we have to walk across and pick up the teacup or somebody says something and it's like, I'm out the door, goodbye. I'm going away from you. And if somebody in their blocking isn't moving towards something or away from something, then they're just wandering. They're just moving. And so finding that purposeful blocking for every character, for every moment is part of my job. And then if they find a way to do my job better than I did my job, so be it, you know, and hooray. So back to knowing the script better than the actor knows the script mm -hmm. at the beginning. Even though everything is judged by the metric that is the text, are you mm -hmm. watching YouTube videos of previous productions? Are you looking up reviews? What other kind of context are you packaging around that, if any? Okay, I never watch past productions. I just, I don't do that. I don't watch the movie. I stay miles away from that because I don't want to get tainted. And I don't want to, to, to rely on that as a crutch, you know, and that's not necessarily saying that doing that is a crutch, but for me, it is. What I will do is I will spend much more time in period research and cultural research, looking at the world of the play through history. What was going on at the time? How did people move? What did the clothing say? What were the social mores at that time? What was the relationship between genders? Uh, what was the relationship between generations? You know, what was going on in terms of government? What was going on in terms of art and culture and music? To me, when I'm finding out those kind of things, then the play starts to just go by itself. I don't have to guess at something. There's an acting exercise that I used to do with my acting classes all the time, which was I would just pick out some random student or one of the first days of class, you know, somebody that was a name on a roll and I'd never seen. And I would say, please do me a favor. Please describe your house. And they would go, oh, well, uh, red brick, three bedrooms, two bathrooms. Uh, we have a picket fence, blah, blah, blah. And they start going through everything. And I go, great. Now, one other thing, describe my house. And they'll go, um, I think it would be this. And, um, uh, I'm, I'm guessing that you have a dog and, you know, they would say all these other things and I go, perfect, great. You're completely wrong <laughs> about my house, but you did exactly what I asked you to do. You made your best attempt to describe my house without knowing anything about it. 
and then pointing out to them, so how can you get up and do a character in a show, in a script, and you're just guessing at who that character is? And it's the same thing for me as a director. How can I create a show where I'm guessing what the culture was like, where I am guessing was in fashion, where I am guessing all these different things. And so for me, that's the process. It's, it's, re, it's research, you know, and it's digging into all of the, the givens that are in a play, then also reading the script to find out what those cues are because that's where you start to learn what the motivations of each character are, why they're doing what they're doing. To me, that's what's of most value. When you decide what the story is about, mm -hmm. how do you package that conceptually as an articulated statement for your designers and for your mm -hmm. cast? Usually I will start off the process first in production meetings with the production team and then with the cast when we have our first cast meeting. I just take some time to give some general statements about what's going on and how we're going to approach this particular piece. Um, an example of this, uh, not long ago doing Holiday Inn, well, most of the characters in that show are chorus people from Broadway. Then there are also people who are just wrapped up in that period you know, not necessarily in show business, but in that period. And so what I did is I told each cast member, I want you to pick an icon from a Hollywood film in that era. And I want you to study them and use them for inspiration so that you are learning what mannerisms were like, speech patterns, um, how they used comedy, just dance styles, clothing styles, hairstyles, all of that different stuff. And so every person in that cast picked a different you know, Hollywood icon, whether it was some, everybody from Danny Kaye and Van Johnson, Gene Kelly, Ginger Rogers, Rita Hayworth, Lucille Ball. I mean, it was all over the place. And it was just such a rich experience watching them capture the flavors of those characters one at a time. You could see those moments when it's like, oh my gosh, you just Lucille Balled right there. <laughs> you know, you did, you just did that. And it gave them an ownership of what they were doing. And that's, that's the real process. Everybody involved has to be aimed toward that same goal and have ownership in it. They, know, they need to know how they fit in what's going on so that at any point in any production, you can look anywhere on that stage and go, oh, the play is going on right there. That vendor in the town of Brigadoon is really hawking their wares and that person is really buying them really buying them, not going, look, I'm buying, you know, not, not going, oh, watch me sell. You know, no, it's like, what are you doing? Not what are you saying? What are you doing? And going back to action, actions speak louder than words. And even though the words of the playwright are there to capture that action and illuminate that action, it's really a matter of doing, not saying, what are you doing? So how is that working for you on a production team? It's a matter of creating the playing field. You have to put them into the right arena for those things to happen. And so sometimes that's going to mean a very conceptual, beyond reality kind of scenic design where you have to have a lot of flexible locations, you know? And so really you're dealing with mostly like platforms and scaffolding and things of that nature. 
And then you either bring in individual pieces to say we're in a different place now, or it might be the kind of a show where you just say it, you know, and the audience gets to go along on that imaginary journey. Really, which play you're doing should define that. Pippin, for example, I mean, we're not going to be going to realistic setting after realistic setting. You know, it's a fable. It's in its own way, almost a fairy tale. So that you're jumping around as opposed to doing something like Blight Spirit, where every object in there has to be in the world of that family. You know, it's that natural place and helping the team all understand that. You know, what we're doing here is something where it's very, very, very creative in terms of the way that it's playful. Um, doing a production of The Robber Bridegroom, which is, you know, very much, you know, American folktale, and they go into the woods. Well, you know, I have used the actors as the trees at times that people are just passing in and through. Everything was like planks and crates and buckets and we turned them into beds and we turned them into bridges and we turned them into cabins and all these different things because that's the nature of play in that script instead of going, hi, we're going to put up the fourth wall and we're just going to spy into this world. No, you, the audience, you are part of the participation. You are part of what's going on with the imagination here. So we want you to feel like you're in the playground or you're in the sandbox and we're just making it up as we go kind of feeling. Is it overt for you in your conversations with the cast or the team? Or is it just sort of like, let's just focus on the world building and then the message is gonna come through? Most of the time, that's a fairly global integrated approach um, so that the, uh, the cast has the opportunity to see costume pieces, renderings, scenic design early on so they know where we're playing and what the uniforms are so that they have context. I, I think it's really important to not blindside. Yeah, nasty surprises are nasty. Delightful surprises are great when it's like, oh, it works well, this is what I was expecting. That's the kind of surprise people deserve as opposed to, did you two even talk? So I, I like people to have lots of awareness unless it's a piece that is meant to be organic, you know, that is meant to build as an ensemble piece and the work defines the design. Give me an example goes. of that. I feel like that happens less often maybe in musical theater. I did a production of something called Story Theater, uh, which is a lot of Aesop's fables and Grimm's fairy tales and things that are done by a company. That, that was one where we did a lot of playtime because it was geared toward family audiences so that especially children would be part of that audience. And so we wanted that sense of play and we wanted that, you know, less structured. It's always still structured because you discover and then you lock it in um, unless it's specifically an improv show. And if it's an improv show, well, that's a whole different ball of wax because then the director, if there is one, is a guiding eye, but then you turn it over to the actors and it's like, see ya, you know, what's going to happen tonight? And it's just fly by the seat of your pants. I mean, that was one that specifically just jumps to mind of a way that, you know, we play and find. So it's 
we've talked a lot about like the creative part of the process. What logistical or organization or communication must haves do you put into the process so that you're not blindsiding the cast or you are not failing to, to communicate to the audience and you're as a tour guide, this is what mm -hmm. the story is. Having been trained in all disciplines um, and being, you know, actor, singer, dancer, as well as taking design classes and all that other stuff, I work as hard as possible. Like if I'm working with a choreographer, you know, saying they have to be able to sing this here. Don't give them something that is so aerobic that they're going to be out of breath because they're not supposed to sound out of breath. Maybe they're doing a number like uh, side by side by side in company where they actually have panting built into the vocal score. You know, <laughs> what would we do without you? You know, it's right there. It's like, great. So they are doing a marathon in that number. And all of these New York socialites are winded and it's meant to be that. Other times, we don't want to know that. Or like saying to a musical director, it has to go at this tempo because this is this style of dance. And if it's slower, it doesn't work physically. The physics are wrong. The ballistics are wrong. And that goes all the way back to what is the piece saying? Go back to the script, go back to the score. What is it dictating to us? Not how are we tweaking it in such a way that we are actually undermining the purpose. Have mm -hmm. you worked with a script where you're like, I, there is there is a fundamental problem or a hole or something that does not make sense. And then, and what's your workaround for that? Oh, oh, there's a script that will go unnamed that I despise, that I directed one time, <laughs> that it was actually part of a package deal because it was something that I was really excited about directing. And the producer of this company said, I've got a deal for you. How would you like to direct the Utah premiere of this show? And I was like, I would love to do that. That would be really great. I'm excited. They said, great. So if you will also direct this for our company, you can do that. Direct this first, then that. And I was like, oh, devil, you <laughs> evil, evil through. person. Jump through. <laughs> I know, I know. And, you know, and they were a friend of mine and I was like, okay, I'll bite the bullet. But it, it was a script that I think is horrendously flawed. And I just think it's painful. But it's a very popular script, so I'm not. I'm not. I'm yeah, not going to mention it. Anything out specifically? What type of hole or problem were you dealing with? It was like too many cooks. Too many cooks. They were trying to do too many things in this story. They were trying to bring in too many different elements, and the problem is that they weren't doing justice to most of them. It was something that was quite a collage of different elements. Just not, and a lot of people are a fan of this particular thing. And so what I did is I just massaged it like crazy. And it's like, okay, folks, we're gonna breeze through this part. You know, we're gonna make this, this is gonna be transitional. This is gonna be transitional so that we can get to this meat over here, get more meat over here and more meat over here. And, you know, the production worked. The audience had a fine time and it was on my broken back. That's <laughs> kind of how I felt about it. There have been times, you know, when I've been given a new script and as I'm in the midst of it going, okay, this is one that, this will be a one and done. 
I'll do this. I will never seek out this script again. Whereas there are others that it's like any day of the week, dial me up. I am there. I will happily do this production, this production, this production until the day I die, just because I love them. I get them and I feel like, you know, I can, I can deliver with every cast that comes through every set of designers, every theater space, every theater company. It's like, I, I know what to do for you with this script. Oh, you know, give, me, like, give me three examples of shows that you could do forever. I could do forever. Um, the first three that come to mind are Sweeney Todd, You're in Town, and The Mystery of Edwin Drood. That's funny, uh, given that, that you were that you called out Sweeney Todd and You're in Town earlier in our interview for, for not being uplifting. That's interesting to me. Right, yeah. No, those are ones that I absolutely love. And then if we jump over to the other side of the spectrum, you know, any day of the week, I'll do a South Pacific. Love South Pacific. Love that story. Yeah, I mean, there's there, there's just a bunch. And there are ones where I feel like, yeah, I've paid my dues there. And if I don't do that one again, I'm okay. <laughs> but, Talk to me about Drood for a minute, because for anyone listening that doesn't know, Drood wasn't a story that Charles Dickens finished in life because he died. Exactly, and so, which I love. Yeah, so... How does that not cause you a problem in the text? How was that gap bridged so that you don't have holes and problems when you're mounting that production? Because they were so smart when they put it on the stage, they acknowledged that and said, we have something that doesn't have an ending. And so it became content dictates form. The content was incomplete. So we're going to do a production that has an element of being incomplete. So we have to build into the production, how do we complete this story? Audience, you're going to complete the story. You are going to be our playwrights tonight. And so there's that certain point in the script where they go, it was at this moment that Charles Dickens laid down his pen forever. But tonight, we assume the task of finishing this story off so that you walk away satisfied and the audience gets to pick you know, who are the secret lovers, who was the detective in disguise, and who was the killer. And that kind of playfulness and interactive piece. And I, I love the period in which it's set. I love the score. I love the characters. It's absolutely one of my favorite things to get my hands on any chance I get. Talk to me mm -hmm. about how, how your job as a choreographer fits in with a director's job. Absolutely. Okay. So we're going to go right back to doing. If I'm choreographing a piece, I have to look at what is happening in that moment. Because one of the things about musical theater is you understand that when do people sing in a musical? When words alone can no longer express the fullness of their emotions. And it can be happiness, sadness, anger, whatever it is, they have said and said and said and said, now it spills over into a whole other level and we add music to it, which is non-literal but so emotional. The same thing is true with dance. Instead of walking across the stage, now we have to leap across the stage. Now we have to tiptoe across the stage or tap our way across the stage. So my job as choreographer or any choreographer is to go, they were doing this and now they're suddenly going into a bigger thing. What are they doing? Are they competing? Are they flirting? Are they celebrating? Are they entertaining? Which certainly happens in lots of musicals. You know, even in something as 
fluffy as Nona Nanette. The dance numbers come along because Uncle Jimmy is sitting playing at the piano and Nanette is singing along. And all of a sudden, the male chorus comes in and they begin to croon along with what's going on with ukuleles. And so they are there to support this little joyful musical moment that's happening. Well, then Aunt Sue strolls down the stairs and begins to dance to the music. And then the whole ensemble comes in and has a big tap blowout. Okay. So that's all just building off of Uncle Jimmy sitting at the piano, trying to cheer Nanette up. And it just builds and builds and builds from there. Then you've got something like, you know, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, and you've got the barn raising dance. Well, that is like full on competition. It's like the, the men of the town showing the Pontipi brothers. No, these are our women. You stay away. And the Pontipi brothers are going, no, we know what we came for. We're going to get them away from you. And for the ladies, it becomes, ooh, it's choosing time. And so all three of those factions in that dance number are doing something. They're not just doing cool dance steps, you know, and like cool dance steps are great. They're cool dance steps. But what is being said, you know, in a production like Chicago or Cabaret, you have some numbers which are very big dance numbers but they are there to demonstrate we're part of the underbelly of society. We're part of the gangsters. We're part of the prisoners. We are part of the nightclub scene. We are part of the party scene that's going on. And so you look at what is being done and then you need to create movement that says that. And you listen to the music because the music is also gonna be such a blueprint for you. It's gonna go, oh, here's a musical event. Oh, here's a climax. Oh. Oh, here's transition. Oh, listen. Oh, right there. They are moving. They are moving. Oh, now we're slowing down. We're taking some time. You go back to the script. You go back to the score. And they tell you what to do. So as somebody who has written scripts and scores, mm -hmm. um, and that sounds like that came, you know, quite a bit later in your experience than realizing other people's scripts and scores. Mm -hmm. How do you occupy that space? when maybe your, your vast experience and inclination is to do the other layers that come after? In other words, how do I write material that puts all the signposts in there of what's supposed to happen? Is that without, kind of your without, question? Yeah, but without being a director and a choreographer in the text, or, or is that okay to be a director and a choreographer at that stage? In the same way that I envision as I read a script, I also envision as I write. You know, in my mind, it's like, oh, this is what's happening. This is what they are doing. Now, what are the words that take me through those actions, through the doing? So that maybe that, does that kind of help answer your yeah, question? So I, I've seen productions that you've written and that you've directed. So I, okay. it's hard for me then to discern at what point you made any choice because it was all your choices. They're all coming ultimately from the same <laughs> okay. person. But I've also seen productions of yours that other people have directed. Uh -huh. I've never looked at that script on the page. So sure. I'm curious how much, how many cues are you putting in? And because you are a director and a choreographer, are you able to be more artful in sliding in cues? Or are you just like, no, this is my sphere and this is where I live? Um, <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, because I've also seen productions done of my works by other companies and other directors and things. 
And let me, let me go to that place yeah. and kind of talk backwards. And that might answer your question. In that environment, I'll sit and I'll watch the production and I'll go, oh, you didn't catch this. Oh, you didn't, you didn't acknowledge this. Or, oh, this didn't mean to you what I meant this to mean to you. You took this another direction. Do I like that direction? You know, and then I have to kind of evaluate in those terms. So I'll compare myself to the Easter Bunny. When I'm writing, I need to be hiding the eggs in really cool places, but they need to be able to be found. If I am hiding Easter eggs so deep that you don't find them until next fall and they're all rotted and everything, oops, bad on me. But certainly if I'm directing my own works, it's like, wow, there's shorthand. You know, it's the easiest thing in the world to go, oh, now this is what, this is what was intended. And then the task becomes selecting the cast that's really going to merge with that and tell that story best. And then as I go from different cast to different cast with the same production, I have to go, okay, now this time, Daniel is going to be more this way. Constance is going to be more this way. And does that still fit within the paradigms that I've created? Absolutely. Absolutely. So now we're going to wear, we're going to wear the show a little differently. Is that just as easy for you to find the different shades when you've been the writer as it is for you when you've not been the writer? Um, I think so. It's one of the reasons why plays get done over and over by different companies, because we like to see what happens with, you know, a, fr a fresh take, you know, how does it go this way? We like the story. Now let's go see how much we like this version of the story. And sometimes we go in and we go, that was amazing. And other times we go, I liked the version I saw here better. Cool. Art is subjective. And that's one of the really great things about art. You know, you know what you want to put up on the stage. You put it up on the stage and then you sit back and go, I hope you enjoy it. And if you do, awesome. And if you don't, you didn't. Given that you are um, very much a Disney guy and we yeah. walked right up to the idea of fresh takes on, on same stories, I want yes. to end with asking you favorite live action Disney remake. Easy peasy. I can do this so fast. Are you talking about live action film or live action Broadway? Oh. Can we do that as two separate answers if they are two separate answers? Because I feel like that might deserve two separate answers. Absolutely. Favorite stage adaptation, Lion King, hands down. Hands down. Because they told the same basic story, but they put it through a filter of culture. And Julie Tamar, Tamar was an absolute genius in terms of putting us into the middle of a fanciful theatrical world in which we could tell the story of the Lion King with cultural enhancement and not feeling like anything was forced on the story. It's one of the only stage adaptations of Disney that I really care for. The other one is Beauty and the Beast. I like Beauty and the Beast because that one stayed as true to the film as they could, but added some additional music that had been cut and other things, and still felt like the essence was there. Essence for me is a big word, because if the essence of something is maintained, then you got what you came for. You go to that word and you think in terms of perfumes. Um, 
you know, we're going, this is, this particular perfume is going to have essence of roses. Well, what's essence of roses? It's that smell that you go, that's rose. I know rose. I know exactly what rose smells like, or I smell gardenia, or I smell cinnamon. I smell, you know, sage. I smell these different things. And it's like, that is the essence of that smell. You have to go, what is the essence of that story? What is the essence of that script? And if I'm not delivering that, it's not going to smell like a rose when it should smell like a rose. So on a um, cinematic level, which Disney live action got the essence right? Yeah, which one got the essence right? There are a lot of them I have actually avoided because <laughs> I, saw, I saw the trailers and I went, oh, not so much. Not so much for me on those. Probably the two of which I have been most fond thus far. There were a lot of elements of Aladdin that I enjoyed. There were a lot of elements of that that worked for me. There were some that didn't, but I feel like they got a lot of that one right. And Cinderella. Cinderella was really good because they kept a really great essence to that one. And then also recently Mulan. Because with Mulan, you know, they took, you know, so many of the elements out, a lot of the music and things. But just the story of adventure and that heroic woman and family and, you know, sacrifice, just all those things. It was like, okay, you're, yeah, you're giving me so many good things with this one. Others, not so much sometimes. <laughs> thank you to my guest, Jim Christian. Jim, thank you so much for chatting with me today. I really enjoyed our interview. Oh, you're welcome. I appreciate the opportunity. It's been fun. Leave a review for In the Telling on Apple Podcasts. Find out more at lizzylizzyliz.com. Keep In the Telling commercial free and get exclusive access to full interviews on Patreon. Theme music by Gordon Vitas. In the Telling is hosted and produced by me, Liz Christensen. Thank you for listening. <laughs>